Life is full of personal wins. Whether it's cleaning your house, getting that dream car, or checking off your to-do list, winning at life is a great feeling. And with the State Farm Personal Price Plan, you can keep winning when you create an affordable price just for you by bundling home and auto. So give yourself a round of applause. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Most weight loss plans are one size fits all, not taking into account each person's individual needs. Noom is built for your psychology and your biology, meeting you where you are. Noom Weight uses psychology. That's why they say losing weight starts with your brain. But it also takes into account your unique biological factors, which also affect weight loss success. The program helps you understand the science behind your eating choices and why you have cravings. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. Plus, check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available for pre-order wherever books are sold. Happy New Year! Hey, welcome to 2012 and the first Nerdist podcast of this year. Uh, this was uh, Tim Minchin. I recorded this in London in December when I went there to shoot stuff for BBC America. Next Nerdist TV special airs January 14th with Alison Brie and Kunal Nayar. Tim is a freaking genius. Uh, I met him at the Just for Last Festival in Montreal last year. And then this past year, I was lucky enough to get to do uh, The Green Room. It's a Showtime show hosted by Paul Provenza. And uh, Jimmy Carr was on that episode, and Judah Friedlander, and Eddie Izzard. And uh, the show was so much damn fun, and Tim was hilarious. Uh, I'm going to add one of his songs at the end of this podcast, so stick around until then. Or you can just go to YouTube, look up Tim Minchin, or find him on the tweets at Tim Minchin, M-I-N-C-H-I-N. Uh, or don't. You don't have to. You don't have to do any of those things because, you know what, you're a grown-up and God damn it, you can make your own decisions. One of those decisions could be coming to see the Nerdist Podcast live when it comes to a city near you. Go to Nerdist.com slash calendar to get tickets and info about that. And now the Nerdist Podcast number 155 with the amazing Tim Minchin! Now entering Nerdist.com Fuckem. Fuckem is the opening salvo for the podcast. <laughs> it is. Uh, fuck them. Welcome. Was this uh, a language-free... This is this is a podcast, isn't it? It is language-dense, but you can swear as much as you want. Excellent. Um, Tim mentioned... This is really... This is great, that because we're usually not remotely in the same part of the world. No. We, we, we usually make a, a thing, make it a point to... Uh, to make sure we're as far away apart, far apart from each other as possible. But this time it was unavoidable. It was a problem, yeah. Yeah. But I think it's good we're making lemonade <laughs> out of the lemons of our proximity. <laughs> These proximity lemons have really yeah. yielded some. It's quite been a good year for proximity tasty, lemons. Yeah. Tasty pulp. Proximity lemons. Um, Sounds like a band. It's our band. We're the proximity <laughs> lemons. 
We're gonna perform, but but the Hello, trick is Wembley. the trick is we can never be in the same venue at the same time. One person has to be in one venue, and the other has to be in the other venue. And you need to be watching both shows at the same time to understand. Yeah, it's you have the, to put one sort of sound source in one ear because yep. it's a stereo thing. Yeah, and I think we just need to wait for broadband to get better. But we can just stream it. As soon as that happens. It's gonna be really good. It's gonna be great. Your bill, your your uh, office space is pretty cool. Yeah, I painted the the walls blue in order to make it feel less unblue. Yeah, uh, I blueified it, and I put there were all these mirrors. Cause it used to be a dressing room, and I put black cloth over the mirrors so that I didn't have to stare at my stupid face. Because <laughs> you know when you're sitting in a restaurant and there's a mirror or something, and you're sitting opposite it, you can't help but look at yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, even for the sort of schadenfreude of, of the, the awfulness of your own head um, in some people's cases. And I thought that would be a problem. Although by the time we finally got round to blacking out the mirrors, I'd sort of stopped noticing myself. So You've desensit- You were desensitised to yourself. To my own image, yeah. I, which happens a bit in this game anyway. My, uh, the, the hotel I'm staying at, there is a full mirror to the left of the toilet. Right. So you have a full view for or anything you if you're urinating or blowing your nose or just blowing your load. Blowing your load against the back of the British disgusting. toilet. It's disgusting. What? No, it's I, not. I it's travel natural. a lot. Yeah, that's right. And you know, it's, it's a lonely, lonely. time. It's very lonely. And hotel although. rooms make you feel sexy, don't they? They, they Well, mean, they used to. Before I started staying in them all the time, it used to trigger this sort of hotel room, find someone to have sex with or or solve it some other way right. sort of response. But now I've lost that. They're not sexy to me anymore. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's really just a place to go uh, drop your stuff for a few minutes and then go work and then... Uh, what do you do in hotel little... rooms? Do you watch telly? I never watch television anymore. I just... It's just all uh, internet. Yeah. Internet, iPad. Yeah. I, 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 I falsely congratulated myself recently for like, you know what? I really used to think I was addicted to television and I never watch television anymore. Let me just go back onto the internet. Yeah, that's oh, right. Oh, okay. I, I, I think I'm seriously addicted to looking at stuff online like Twitter and social networking bollocks email but uh, but I never watched telly but I never really did I'm watching an American TV series called Friday Night Lights at the moment does that make me bad? not at all Everyone, that, that's an amazing show that I, I just haven't started watching it's pretty yet. much a soap opera yeah. but it's just really well done mostly really well acted and it's so obvious because the sports like the reason we love sports is because we get to know the characters we get to know the players and stuff mm-hmm. and they're sort of exploiting both sport and drama there's just that that movie genre of the, the Mighty Ducks um, underdog arc and you do it week after week you know you just put a game at the end of every episode and it's so <laughs> addictive because you care about what team you care about your team yeah they've generated fictional sport I just haven't started watching it the thing that initially put me off Friday Night Lights is that I'm not a I'm not a football fan but then everyone says it does, it's not about the no, football I don't even know what's going on it doesn't matter are you a sports do you like do you like sports yeah yeah I do but I don't I don't engage I haven't got into football over here soccer because I just don't have time and I don't have Sky TV and whereas in Australia I was pretty pretty um, keen follower of the Fremantle Dockers Mm-hmm. But they, that's Australian rules, which is the best sport in the world, obviously. Rugby? Mm. No. Not rugby? Football. No, football. Footy. Footy. No, it's not, it's not any of the ones you know. You Australians and your cutening of words. Footy. Footy. 
bathing no, suits it's a totally cozies. No, over on the east coast there are there bathers in the west. <laughs> See, that's even more adorable. Bathers. <laughs> oh. Condescending love. It's not. It's so adorable. <laughs> the bathers. What do you call it? Uh, bathing suits. <laughs> Swim trunks. Swim trunks. We uh, Americans. We like, need to find one word for that. We're just like we're just like Dutch or actually because English is a Germanic language, so we're just we're we're more on the Germanic side where right. we just like More harden words, words and yeah. we're they're kind of ugly. Stack them up. We do. We really mm. just mash them. They're they're disgusting. Speedos. Uh, speedos. You, you we say speedos. speedos. Yeah, yeah. That's a brand. You don't call them budgie smugglers. We do not call them budgie smugglers. I mean, now we will. Now, now that's you have brought yeah. that. You, yeah. you, cock should... jocks or bu- budgie smugglers. I think it's. I think it is. And I'm sorry to tell you this. It's your responsibility to infect our vocabulary the way the cane toad infected Australia. Okay. With as many uh, adorable uh, uh, colloquialisms as possible. Sure. So, just if you want to sprinkle them out throughout the podcast, I think people would really appreciate it. I'm actually like the worst person. I'm a very un-Australian Australian. I don't I don't use any of those things naturally. Although I you don't you don't actually know it. I I still discover words that people don't use, especially um, on the radio when I get in trouble for saying bastard and bugger which are which have, have no weight in Australia. You can say bastard and bugger on the radio. You can't hear? No. Really? Not on the BBC, no. Oh, I thought they were, I thought they were super lax about language no, over here. No, they're real tight bastards. Bugger. <laughs> we, we, can, we can even say that in the States. Yeah. You can say bad. bugger? Yeah, we can say bugger. But not buggery. We can say buggery because I think it doesn't really mean anything to anyone in Australia. It's a really... The way American standards works is that if someone complains about it, then it's a problem. Yeah. But if no one complains, and the main, the main uh, glob of people that would complain live kind of in very rural places yeah. or in the middle of the country, and they are not going to know well, what buggery is. Yeah. Now, if you told them what it meant, then they would complain. Yeah. But they're yeah. not, not going to know. Buggery. Buggery. Um, it's in the Bible, buggery. Is it? On some translations. Oh, okay. Really? Bestiality is. They know what that is. Yeah. Because it's in goat the Bible. Buggery. Goat buggery? Goat buggery? I think when you're having sex with a goat, no one really cares what hole you're going at. I don't think so. Does it even matter at that point? I think by then you're kind of ethically, you've crossed the line. Yeah. I don't know. And whether if... it's goat anal or, <laughs> or, or normal goat sex. Goats always sound like they're being fucked in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> terrible. The goats hate panel. They mm. hate it. Where how did you get Poor from goats. I've never been to Western Australia, which you're from Perth. Uh, yeah. And I've never I've never I've never been I've never been to Perth because there is a there's a lot of ground to cover between between Eastern Australia and yeah. is a, a whole lot of nothing. Is 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 that sort of middle what is it, Alice Springs, that, that the middle of Australia? Is it is it inhabitable at all? Well it depends who you are. I mean Alice itself has a, you know, I don't know how many people live there, but it's not many. Mm-hmm. But it's some thousands or something. Um, but I think it's mostly. I don't actually know the history of Alice. What it, whether it grew up around tourism or something. There's a train that runs from Darwin in the north through Alice down to Adelaide in the south, um, which is about the height of the United States. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a big. You only hit one town. You know, there's a lot of space in the middle of Australia. But Alice is not, you, you can't drive across the middle of Australia. You, you, you don't traverse the, the guts. You can't 
you can, but you need a special licence and a diesel car because you're not allowed petrol because of the addiction problems in Aboriginal communities and all this. You need to tell the cops and all that sort of stuff if you want to travel the dirt road from Kalgoorlie to Alice, mm -hmm. which is whatever, a thousand miles or something. And, uh, and then you can drive Alice to the eastern states if you want, but you've got to get through the mountains and stuff. Um, <laughs> this is really boring. It's interesting it's not, to me. actually. It's but fascinating you, to You me. drive along the south coast. To, you can drive from uh, Kalgoorlie to Port Pirie and um, the Eyre Peninsula, which is across the bottom of the Nullarbor Plain, and then you drive up. But, but no one drives through the middle of Australia. And there are um, only, pretty much only, Aboriginal communities in a big, big part, probably two-thirds of Australia might be occupied by, I'm just pulling figures out of my ass, but maybe uh, 100,000 or something people, and most of them are Aboriginal communities. It's, it's incredible, cause the, because the, the land mass of Australia is quite large, but there's only about 20 million Australians or so. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, so there's 20 million. Uh, Australia's, I think... Um, four-fifths the size of the United States mm -hmm. and uh, yeah 20 million wow what's and most of them are within uh, the five percent of land on the coast all just all on the coastal yeah. region what, what what's what's Perth like I mean in, in comparison to, to Eastern Australia like Sydney Melbourne well I don't know it's very hard when it's your hometown to have any sort of judgment of it but there's there's two million people in Perth or something it's very very beautiful it's got a big wide amazing river and and a, a mountain it's not really a a mountain but a, a big steep hill uh, called mount eliza that overlooks the river and so you can go up to what's called king's park which is a huge bit of untouched land in the middle of the city mm -hmm. and acres and acres and acres i don't know what is a thousand thousand acres or something and look down over the whole city and the river and stuff and then you drive 15 minutes the other way and you hit the Indian Ocean which is just wow. on any day I grew up near Swanbourne Beach and pretty much any day of the year you can go down to the beach and it could be 25 30 degrees whatever that is in your language you know really a nice mm -hmm. perfect day and there'll be three people on the beach and sort of just acres of white sand and and yet uh you know, you can get good coffee and great food and great wine, and I'm, I'm not this sort of. I don't know. There's definitely something about Perth that makes people a little uh, defensive or or uh, paranoid about other. You know, it's, it's got a little bit of small town stuff going on, oh, gotcha. but not a small town, but isolated small town. Right. So it's a big thing to go to the next town. When you live in Perth, you've got to get on a plane to get to Adelaide, and that's the next town, basically. I mean, you can go down to Albany, which is six hours away, and I think it's got 400,000 people or something. I've never... I, I, I always kind of toy with the idea of just kind of going into Sydney and then like, oh, then I'll go to Perth, and then I'll fly over to New Zealand. And yeah. But it actually is a tremendous it's all amount big. of travel. It's all big, yeah. It's like popping to LA. It's the same from New York. But yeah. you, you should do it one day, but do it and take three weeks and go down to the southwest into the wine regions and then go up to through Kalbarri up into the Kimberley it's insane and change your life it's beautiful was there any space is there any kind of comedy scene in Perth or were you, were you did you start more in the music scene and then kind of drift yeah, into comedy sort of music theatre yeah so I didn't really I wasn't doing comedy when I lived in Perth um, at all I did a bit of uni theatre 
sort of comedy and actually I had done a couple of things with with a couple of friends that you'd say is comedy but that, that's more putting on theatre shows putting on sketch shows sort mm-hmm. of thing there was one venue in Perth that did comedy called the Brass Monkey a, a mm-hmm. room and uh, stand-ups did stuff there but I never went I never watched comedy either um, so the answer is no there's not was, you certainly couldn't live as a comedian in Perth unless you're on the radio good oh. morning Perth so those are pretty much the same everywhere, the morning radio shows. Yeah, that's right. Um, there's not really anyone in Australia making a good living out of stand-up um, unless they're a radio or TV presenter at the same time. That's why people like me live here, because the vast majority of what I do is live. Um, yeah, I don't really do much TV or radio, except when I'm trying to flog a DVD. Yeah, but, you, but I know that you uh, play the biggest venues in... England that you can play like the O2 well not the I don't play stadiums but yeah the biggest biggest indoor arenas you can play that's that was my last tour I'm not going to do that even Those if I like could 12, sustain 12 that. to 15 thousand well 10 I peaked at 10 oh, okay. at the O2 oh well alright I know uh, but that was a sort of stupid experiment and I had an orchestra and we needed to play those venues to make it pay for itself but yeah I mean it's incredible here you can you can play a lot of shows in a year um, and and specialise in live and it's been interesting for me starting to work in America because uh, there's plenty of places to tour you can tour endlessly in the States to colleges and theatres and towns uh, and be a live guy but the culture of live isn't there you have to sort of try and train your agents and managers and booking agents to realise that the live is an end in itself because in the states it seems to be so you know so once you've done your few years of having to do the live you'll get your tv show right Right. or you'll get into film and you go well i no no i want to i'm a live performer and i write musicals and i suppose if some amazing script script came up that someone wanted me to act in i would do it because i used to be an actor but um but that's not why i'm a comedian i'm not a comedian to try and not be a comedian yeah um, I'm a comedian because I do concerts that people laugh at. Well, it's there's there's a weird sort of back and forth with live performance in because you you need to be able to sell tickets in the states, which is very hard because our country is very big. Yeah, and so you need to do television and film in to order to, to get people back out. So it's this. I feel like it's sort of this constant Chicken back and, and forth. Egg thing, yeah, yeah. Have I done enough public stuff yet so that I can get 800 people to come out? So, not yet. All right, I'll go yeah. back and do more. Yeah. Oh, now right. I have. Okay. Yeah. And then you go to live. Yeah. So you need to do the live to earn the to earn the right to do telly, which in turn, uh, you know, facilitates your desire to play live. Yeah. When did you start figuring out, or when did you decide to sort of drift into the comedy world? Then it's um, October. The 11th, 2003 or something. <laughs> I can find the date. I did, um, I was playing a lot of piano for sort of cabaret acts and stuff and playing in original bands that weren't sort of taking off mostly because I had to earn money and playing in cover bands and doing whatever came up, mm-hmm. acting in plays when that came up. And uh, But really wanting to, when I moved to Melbourne in 2002, I thought I wanted to really push the band thing, try and get a record deal, and on the other hand, try try and be an actor. I wanted to be a acty, bandy guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, they were both the wrong thing to be doing. But 
Well, not really, because what what that what that did is made me very frustrated because I couldn't get an agent because I'm not a trained actor and I I had only worked in Perth and no one no, that that has no credibility in the in the big eastern states and uh, and as I say I was in a bit of a catch twenty two situation with the music thing because I'd do try out nights with my original band and the venue would go this is great come and play Friday or Saturday and I'd go I can't I'm in a cover band <laughs> that pays me whatever but at least it's guaranteed so yeah. I can't let them down or I'll lose that job and I can't afford to only do original so I was in that trap you know just like so many people are in different right. versions of it you know I have to be a journalist to be a writer which gives me no time to be a writer whatever and uh, but I did this thing in 2003 I was playing piano for my friend Eddie Perfect and we've both been on this sort of um, mission to see who could write sort of the most he's a serious muso and we were both writing satirical stuff but relentlessly being musically good as well that was trying you know trying not to let the fact that we were writing satire uh allow us to take the easy way out we really sort of pushed each other a bit and uh i booked a room in the melbourne fringe festival in october gave it a title made a show image got my friend to draw a weird show image called it naval cerebral melodies with umbilical chords and um <laughs> and uh just booked a room and said i'll i'll do a 90 minute show and uh then i had to figure out what that show was and basically what i did is took all my stupid songs and wrote a couple of extras and a poem and a bit of monologue about stuff and i was really seeing it as cabaret not as stand-up not as comedy and uh, did that for about 18 months and then stuck what I'd come up with in the Melbourne Comedy Festival in 2005, which is when I really made the change from calling it cabaret to calling it comedy. It went good. <laughs> it did, but, I, but that's, a, that's a great... I mean, for a lot of people who... Because a lot of like people who want to be comics or want to be writers, whatever, listen, listen to the podcast, and a lot of them always say how do I start doing something? And that's an interesting way to start where you go, well, I just booked the show and then I had yeah. to figure it out. Like giving yourself that kind of a structural deadline. Yeah, yeah. that um, fear. Uh, fear is the great motivator because the hardest thing about doing anything creative is that it's really hard to motivate. It's really easy to procrastinate, easier than if you've got a job that has a very designated and structured aim and a paycheck which implies a certain level of uh, um, you know work if when you're trying to just make stuff you've just got nothing unless you impose those deadlines on yourself you won't do anything well I won't anyway I don't wake up in the night and go, I need to write a song I used to when I was young but not, not for many years you just have to scare the shit out of yourself so booking a venue I it's the best thing to do having said that I, and I've always done that even when I was playing original bands I wasn't very good at doing the sort of weekly gigs I'd just record an album book a 500 seater and say that's my launch and it's because of this sort of theatre background that I've got where a show is something you put on from scratch I've got a, a, a show mentality it always has been for me that you put on a show and my comedy reflects that you know it, it's not stand-up, it's a show or it's a concert or something, but it's not. I've never done five minutes ever or ten in a club. Um, 
I might have recently because I, friends asked me to, but I didn't come up that way. Having said that, booking 90 minutes, if you haven't got a hell of a lot of hours under your belt, getting good at what you do is just self-indulgent nonsense. I mean, when I booked that venue, I had played piano in public in various forms for 10 years and had been writing music and having that performed in public for theatre and in bands and stuff for 10 years and had spent hours and hours and hours on stage in cover bands or plays or whatever for 10 years. So regardless of the fact that I didn't have any experience as a comic, in inverted commas, I had done my 10,000 hours or whatever the theory is. So you've got to get the balance. You've got to get to a point where you think, I'm proud of this, and then all in. You know, once you got to a point where you think this is different and I'm proud of it, you go all in, every cent, every hour, all, all your fear, you just go all in because everyone's trying to do it. So if you don't go all in, you're fucked. Well, and it also, it, it, you can tell when someone's not either comfortable or confident with what they're doing and the audience... Yeah, <laughs> the audience is like a fucking wolf. Like yeah. they'll they'll they'll, they'll, smell, they'll it. smell it. They'll totally. sense it, and yeah. then if they feel like if they feel like you're not in charge of the show, there is a weird sort of alpha thing that happens with a performer on stage where you kind of have to show them you're the leader of the pack. Exactly yeah. because they because they want to follow you. That's yeah. why they paid money. That's why they yeah. came and sat down in the seat. They want to be led around. But if you look like you're not willing to lead them, they'll <laughs> they they'll write you. Yeah. yeah, they will. Yeah, and it, it, in a much more subtle way, in, in comedy, that, that translates as heckling and shuffling and coughing, um, but, but heckling and, and, and silence, mm-hmm. the dreaded silence. But in, in all art, you know, it's a band that'll translate to people just going to the bar, and in, in a play it'll be rustling and coughing, and pe- people will only pay attention if you make them. You did an amazing show the other night at, uh, at the Soto Theatre, um, Matt Kirshen saw that I, who is a, a wonderful British uh, comic, saw that I was in London and said, oh, we're doing this show at the Soho Theatre and Paul Provenza is running it, who I've known for 20 years. Yeah. And it was a such a simple, genius idea that had never occurred to me before in the years that I've been doing comedy. Been an improvisational stand-up set Yeah. where you have to go on stage and then they project a series of topics throughout your set that you have to hit but you have to make it seem like this is the set that you have been yeah. that you have perfected for years. It's just an years. improv exercise, but there's not really the the audience and you see the topic at the same time. So mm-hmm. the the topic is projected onto the wall. It hits the wall, and you have to be talking within seconds. Uh, and I was so scared, but it is it is a brilliant idea, and and it's brilliant not not because most people have the capacity to make up stand up comedy in the moment no one does uh, and nor nor should you be able to if it was that easy it would you know there are people who can be funny just talking but but uh, but if you did that without telling the audience that this was the structure of what we're doing it would not go well you know (laughs) but the audience is in on it they know that you are seeing the topic as they see the topic and they're carrying around all their baggage they're going oh my god i would just die and they're sitting there thinking what would i say what would i say and when you're when i was backstage watching greg proops and all these amazing guys do this i was like blank but when you're on stage you got a mic in your hand and a light in your face and the adrenaline's running for people like us who have done that a lot 
it's kind of like flicking a switch so it can be a very very positive thing and because the audience knows that you're improvising they are g'd up and so on the edge of their seats waiting for you to say something just clever or to turn a corner that they didn't see coming or to just interpret the topic in a way they didn't see coming or to dig up a pun or or to to go some circuitous route to landing on the topic whatever the sort of uh, currency that you play with they're incredibly enthusiastic in their response it's a really cool idea it's, it's, and, and I really enjoyed it, but I was scared. I know I would have because Matt came up to me before the show and he said, "Oh, one of the performers isn't here. Do you want to go up?" And I, my response was, "When? When? When do you want me to go?" Like, because I'm, yeah. I'm, the wheels are turning in my <laughs> yeah. head. Like, what am I gonna? The same way that you're backstage, kind of blanking. But that's that is the perfect distillation, I think, of when you can get your brain out of the way you're okay when you're backstage yeah. and you're thinking about it your brain's in the way yeah when you're on stage you're just you just kind of fucking shove there's your no brain room in the way and go, brain. we yeah. gotta, no we room gotta fucking the, get in this no room for the second layer for the for the uh, self um, editing layer you just you, your brain's entirely on the next thing it's a bit like playing sport if you've played much sport you know you don't actually have space you're just thinking about the game and it's it's I, I thought it was a really interesting experience and gratifying for me because um, they put a keyboard on stage for me because obviously playing uh, funny songs is my stock in trade and I'm very able to improvise songs and, and it's and you don't have to be very funny to make a song funny if you're improvising it you just have to hit one rhyme or land on a, on a tagline that sounds like a pop song and uh, and I uh, and I was glad that I was there because I thought I'll I'll probably just go straight to the keyboard and 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 kind of wow them with song improvisation because that's something most people don't understand. Um, but I didn't. I stayed I stayed up at the mic, and that was my mission to go to the piano as little as possible. And I basically went once, I think. You did. You went for the the, the chlamydia, yeah. chlamydia, yeah, which said, sounded like a jingle. And actually, I didn't do a very good job with that. Oh, I thought it was great. <laughs> and and the other the other thing that and I don't know if the audience picked up on this, but I. But at least when you when you did when you did a little bit at the, at the piano, the chlamydia, yeah, you did the song, and I think you did, you did like AIDS, no chlamydia, yeah, or yeah, something yeah. like that. But then you you did the quick song, and you stood up, and you're like, see, I didn't even need the piano that much. Like, yeah. I, I don't know. It sort of felt to me like, oh yeah, that's really that's awesome. He's still pushing himself to to not have to feel like he's relying on the thing that he's been doing for yeah. so long. Yeah, and, and I, I kind of I thought that was really charming. Oh, thanks. It was. It's. It's a nice, safe space, you know. And it's. And it's different from improv in the sort of improv game. If people have watched improv, you don't really have that the the rules and the structure of. Because if you ever go see an improv troupe, there, there's sort of training you do, mm-hmm. learning not to block and how to take up offers, and you know there are sort of signs and and ways out. And actually, uh, proops was sort of playing the topics like an improv game and acting scenarios absolutely brilliantly. I mean, he's a complete genius. Um, but if you're not an actor and you haven't done a lot of improv, you've just got to start talking. And uh, and that's interesting to me because I've done a bit of... I've watched a lot of improv because I used to play piano for an improv troupe. Um, and uh, this is a very different thing. It really is proper free-falling. It's cool. The show's called The Set List, for anyone who's listening, and it's, it's a really terrific show, and I believe... Quite a lot on YouTube. I don't think ours are going to be, but... 
Well, they might be. They might be. Jesus. Well, but I think yeah. So I think that, so they do it here, and then I think they're going to start doing it at the UCB in LA. Yeah. On a monthly basis. Rich Hall, who I hadn't seen in oh, years, man. who I loved on SNL, and then yeah. he, Rich Hall, did all the Sniglet stuff and all of the. He did a bunch of really cool prop pieces on SNL in the eighties, and and then just kind of disappeared, and then turns out oh no, yeah. he's he's been in London all this time, yeah. and he's he's pretty. Pretty hugely successful here. He's, he's uh, yeah, he does great. I mean, I remember watching Rich Hall on some stand-up, you know, Royal Variety show or something in the '90s when I was still in Perth, and thinking, "Oh my God, that man is the funniest thing I've ever seen." Yeah, just that dry, totally deadpan. <laughs> And, and he's got smart a as well. Sniglets. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he turned he turned his setlist into into just a straight rant yeah. where he just kind of got in the audience faces and it was yeah. it was a uh, and I stayed on and played piano under him. Oh, did you see him on I Night did, Without Me? No, no. Yeah, I did. Oh, I saw right. him on Night Without You. I saw him yeah, on Night right. Without You. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when we were on our on our one, I played piano under him. Was, I think he I think he thought that was a good idea. I don't know whether he regretted having <laughs> me on stage. How do you keep pushing yourself then? If you if the whole idea is that you need to put yourself in uncomfortable situations and you need to sort of scare yourself and you. You know, when you after you've played for ten thousand people, and after you've done, you know, like all the British television shows, and how do you how do you manage to keep doing that? Well, I think it's about making. It's, I guess related to what I was saying about booking a space if you haven't done the hours, the the, it's about finding a balance between doing things that challenge yourself and not being a self indulgent dick. Um, so, so I want to in the next couple of years. I write another musical, um, you know, something more more difficult. Although I've got this musical called Matilda that's on in the West End, which is uh, Roald Dahl in uh, adaptation, and it's going really well. And it was incredibly challenging and really really great. Um, but I want to do something even harder than that, which is write a musical based not on a famous story. Um, so that's something I want to do. I've I've been a songwriter for 20 years, and I've never done a studio album. And I think I will be um, judged uh, that it's scary to me because I because when you're a comedian, if you go, I'm going to write an album of not comic songs now, um, that that's putting yourself in a very judgeable position. Um, so there's plenty of really scary things for me still to do. I do want to act again. I'm going to get back on, and do some theatre in the next 18 months, sort of mid next year, mid mid 13 in Australia, hopefully, and. Um, just straight, just doing a stop-hard play that I've always wanted to do, and uh, you know that sort of thing. So, luckily for me, because I am a, a songwriter, pianist, singer, comedian, actor. You know, arguably, I'm not good at any one of those things, but I'm fine at all of them. I there's no shortage of um, scary shit still to go. But it is. You're right. It is about. It is about scaring myself, but I do want to not use abuse my position of power that I have now of having an audience and having interest and just go off piste and do a whole lot of stupid projects that no one's interested in. But uh, I really believe in changing it up as much as you can. I, always, uh, I, w- I was in a musical comedy duo for a long time, and, and I always thought, oh, it would be easier to do music because even if they're not getting the bits, you can just distract them with harmonies or, or, yeah. or, or music or whatever, or, or you know, just the fact that there's music. But then what I found is we stopped playing comedy clubs because our songs weren't jokey. Yeah, they were sort of like sketches 
so I guess where I'm going with this is, did you find that, you know, when you start playing in front of an audience, it's because you, you can't bail out of a song really the way you bail out of a stand-up bit. It's like a four-minute sketch. So if people aren't on board, you just have to. They just have to sit through it. Yeah, I mean, I might be a bit deluded because I just don't notice <laughs> if people are enjoying it. Or, I guess uh, I. Um, Mostly, my songs, uh, I don't know, it's like when they're not that funny, I don't really mind. I mean, there are songs in my shows that are not funny at all. Um, They're absolutely, completely not funny because, as I say, I don't see myself as a stand-up. My only currency is not laughter, as I keep telling myself, (laughs) Um, because... uh, just because I, I didn't come to this with any heroes. I didn't watch Bill Bailey or know who Tom Lehrer was or I just wanted to, I don't know, I don't know. I just thought I should write stupid songs. I've always written stupid songs. I guess it started at parties drinking and with a guitar at 18 and we all just made up stupid songs. And, and uh, yeah, I, I just don't... I, I sort of feel like I... I write the songs that fit the show and the show has a sort of arc where, you know, I make sure it doesn't go swing song, swing song. You know, I I make sure that the styles are various and that we don't get stuck on religion for too long and that, you know, whatever my the arc is and that we come down here and then up there and a big number at the beginning and a big one before the end of the first act and, you know, ease in slowly and, you know, save the really sort of intellectually difficult stuff uh, when they're... Um, primed but not tired and all that all those considerations and once I put a show together I kind of think fuck them um, by which I mean the opposite of fuck them which is that I've worked as hard as I can to make this a show that everyone will like uh, and if a bit consistently doesn't work I'll change it out but usually I just sort of make it work you know with eyebrows and <laughs> a piano solo whatever I don't know I just sort of I think because I don't think I need laughs all the time. I'm I'm just not under that pressure. I I do get uh, plenty of laughs. I mean, people walk out of my show feeling like they've watched a comedy show, but then they're not laughing every ten seconds like a stand-up. I think that's kind of well, yeah. That's I guess with stand-up. Well, if you're in the club scene, you really kind of have to. Yeah. Well, I've never to... had that pressure. Yeah. That's the short answer. I've never done the clubs and been put through that. Um, cookie cutter of stag nights you know that that you just go these people are not going to listen I I have friends who do stand up who do long I mean Stuart Lee is a perfect example of someone who does whole bits where people sort of laugh uncomfortably or don't laugh and he's one of the best comedians in the world um, if not the best And, and if you don't make yourself think that laughter is the only currency then you can create basically interesting one person theatre or it doesn't have to have a genre it's just if you can find your audience like Daniel Kitson has and you do what you fucking want they'll come and watch you do a two hour spoken word monologue like he does I guess that's true it's sort of the difference between it's just what you get when you start doing stand up you don't start with one hour shows you start with five minute sets yeah so you kind of get into this mindset of well that's another five minutes okay here's a new five minutes and then you start piecing those together yeah but I guess that's a great approach of thinking about your set really as more of an arc. 
Yeah, it's a piece of theatre. I mean, the, the trouble is the genre. If you're a stand-up comedian, you, you need to have, you know, eight laughs a minute or whatever, <laughs> and you need to you need to do that relentlessly. If you want to be Louis C.K., well, see, there's another example. You, you, Louis is incredible, but as he's got more developed, he goes longer without a laugh because he's an intelligent guy and people want to just listen to him. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't know, but I bet you, I bet if you went back to his club days, you'd find that he's got more expansive and, you know, whatever. Uh, once you're free of the clubs, you realise that you have people in your company for 90 minutes, two hours... And it's a, they're there to watch you and listen to what you have to say. And in my case, I've got a I've got a very strong sort of worldview that comes through my work. So people are coming to hear that articulated, and they're coming to watch me play piano a bit. And um, I send people out crying, you know, because it's because I just don't have I've never had that pressure. And comedians, as they get away from that pressure, you find they they go in that direction as well where laughs aren't the only currency mm, that's a really interesting thought that it never occurred to me before because you, you just it's so ingrained in your head like must yeah. get laughs must, oh this needs more tags alright let me tag yeah. this out take out yeah. the fat yeah well see people comedians listening to me or, or anyone listening to me that doesn't like my work will go you're just making excuses for not being funny um, which might be true as well but it doesn't really worry me because I never called myself stand-up comedian i never all i wanted very early on i went oh, i'd be love to i'd love to get to the point where the journos stopped saying well his stand-up's not as strong as his, his songs or or he's like a young bill bailey or comic musician like i can't i wanted desperately to get to the point where people just went what's what's this guy got to offer us this year because we always go to his shows and we always enjoy them and you just become a bit your your name becomes your category mm-hmm. and i think i'm sort of there um, here and in the states, interestingly, I'm sort of there as well because people tend to come because they've seen Storm or the Pope song. They come because of the worldview. They're not coming because they saw a stand-up and they saw the word stand-up on my poster and went, oh, he might be a bit like Louis C.K. They're not coming for that. They're coming because they've seen a particular um, set of ideas presented. I think. You know, the first time I saw you was in Montreal in for just for laughs in 2010. And we were doing those weird club soda shows, which yeah, are those yeah. early... The club soda shows, uh, there's a there's like a best of the festival that they do every night of the festival, and it's like a 7 o'clock show. And it's in the summer, it's still light outside, it's kind of yeah. a weird... And, you know, the people that come to those shows are... They're just older French-Canadian people. They're yeah. like, you know, fit, the median age is like 45, 50 years old. Yeah, um, They're very polite, but they're not really... They're not really shows that sort of prime you for. Oh, I'm shooting a gala this week. Yeah. I feel all pumped. You sort of. Oh, and man, the first time so I saw you did the you did the Pope show, and um, you know I, I mean it, the song killed. But then there were definitely older people in the audience that just couldn't process yeah. Yeah. what you were saying and what what <laughs> you know like like a like a not outrage but a little like <gasps> this is not he can't, he's not supposed to be able to say that out loud yeah. It's, it's so good. And, and, and I've been lucky. I, I really think that's a, that's a huge thing. I mean, we're, we're, I'm treading over the same ground, but it's just sort of firming up in my head as we speak, that your material is a result of 
the uh, evolutionary pressures that have been put on it. You know, you're if you've spent ten years in clubs, you will be dumbed down because success in comedy is laughter, and laughter in clubs is not necessarily very smart laughter because they're drunk and they're there in a group and they're mm-hmm. whatever. No. Uh, that, that sounds condescending but it's just the atmosphere it's not that they're not smart people it's that it's a club and you've got 10 minutes and you've got to deliver your stuff and everyone's pissed and so that that's the the pressure and the jokes that don't survive that pressure die like like uh, attributes in a species and uh, yeah that's you know, great I love to hear you say that I love and to hear so, you say that so Montreal you know those sorts of things are, which is quite a corporate festival where the crowds are not really necessarily comedy crowds and stuff that stuff can be damaging if you think about it if you if you let yourself worry what the Montreal crowds think you're, you're fucked you know because you you shouldn't let Montreal crowd I mean I love Montreal and often there are great crowds there but those corporate show those mashup shows called Down Under and seven Australian comedians (laughs) and all that those shows if you let them influence you and it's very hard not to because it hurts it hurts your material dying hurts wherever it happens you've got to walk off stage let yourself have your night of self-loathing and your morning of thinking of quitting and then get the fuck over it and remember that you you need to allow yourself to be judged by the crowds you want. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a crowd of people in front of you who are smart, savvy, interested, you know, in my case, uh, rational <laughs> um, comedy, you know, non-religious comedy goers, and your joke doesn't work, then yeah, let that let that place its pressure on you, and fix it or dump it or whatever. But don't don't let a bunch of drunk fucks on a stag do change your material you just can't do it now, most clubs, unless you want to do this clubs forever exactly. in which case do you've got to get that right most clubs are a step above a sport not even a step above they're, they're like a cousin of a sports bar yeah. is basically what you're in and I, I've always just sort of especially in the states especially I mean, in the brutal. states but even just you know even in just Los Angeles just seeing the different identities of the clubs there each club I always referred to them as Galapagos. I'm like, these are different little islands, yeah. and they breed different types of comics. Exactly. And, you know, because it's exactly, exactly right. It's it's Darwinian. You gotta you gotta play the clubs that bring the crowds that will enhance your material in the direction that you you would want to watch. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's a little bit self. You know, it's a bit of a bit incestuous you know but basically if I've got a crowd of people who like the sort of shit I like and my shit's not working I'm in trouble you know how long was it before you were able to start getting your how long did it take for your crowds to start coming out to to see your shows instead of having to that moment where you kind of have to win the crowd over like yeah. you know like the stranger crowds well I guess um, that Melbourne 2005 I sort of was just papering the house the whole time just getting freebies 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 and and within that the melbourne comedy festival is a very it's a great festival it's got a lot of comedy and a lot of people go to it so if your show's good and you give away enough tickets and the word of mouth kicks off then you're good so i was in a 180 seater or something and i started with 30 40 50 people sometimes 20 and by the end of the third week i was feeling it um so that's a little dense uh, microcosm of the real world because in Melbourne you have a uh, during comedy festival you have a crowd of people who want to be watching comedy so if your word gets out it's good um, that doesn't reflect in the real world but it works the same way 
and then in uh, Edinburgh in the same year I did the same thing I was in a 350 seater and I papered it and papered it and papered it and the reviews came out and everyone reads the reviews in Edinburgh and by the end of the first week I had a couple of you know the, you know this is uh, this is something new you should see this sort of reviews um, and so by the end of the second week I was selling out and then I did a couple of shows on the West End that sold out because of the winning the prize in Edinburgh and all that sort of stuff and then I did a tour and uh, sort of sold most of the seats in sort of 300 seaters around Britain went back to Australia same sort of thing and then just doubled every year which if you know anything about exponentiality it means you get big numbers very quickly yeah yeah it only takes a couple of years to <laughs> but I think the trick it sounds like and and where you're luckier than most people is that you knew what you wanted to say and I think a lot of performers know that they want to perform but they don't exactly know what it is that they want to say and that yeah. takes a while to figure that yeah. out yeah I don't know if I did know what I wanted to say but it hadn't ever crossed my mind that you weren't supposed to say the things that I wanted I, I didn't have an, a, a sort of macro intent I want to be a comedian who talks about you know hypocrisy and ethics and religion um, but those are the things I was reading about and thinking about and at no point did anyone or any crowd or any club uh, teach me that that's not what you do so I, I, I've said before that naivety has always been my greatest asset I was incredibly na um, naive I didn't know anything about comedy um, similarly with my musical I, didn't, I don't really watch loads of musicals and I don't read music and I don't study Sundime and, um, and my na naivety was very important going into that because all I did is read the script and went oh what would she sing and how would it sound you know it's incredibly simple which isn't to say it's simplistic but it's a simple process and um yeah I, look I've been you know I've been incredibly lucky I mean straight up not notwithstanding the fact that I came with some skills because I was 30 and I'd been playing for a long time mm -hmm. but the fact that my version of what comedy is and my worldview and it's a conflation of time and place and stuff I mean I struggled a lot through my 20s and when this came it, 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 it went really well really quickly or quickly for me I mean not X factor quickly but you know in five years it's been really good and I do think I'm very lucky that there's a certain zeitgeist of audiences people wanting to read about and listen to and watch uh, stuff about you know rationalism and I don't shit. think I don't think X Factor quick is I don't think anyone should ever strive for that I don't no, think you, I don't think you should ever want that because if you became famous in a week you can get unfamous exactly week, because yeah. you don't have a foundation of skills you don't have a foundation of I mean you have to have enough sort of fuck ups under your belt and yeah. learning experiences under your belt to yeah be comfortable with who you are and and it's just not <laughs> i would not want to you know i was 30 when people started listening in a small way and i guess 33 or 4 before i started getting recognized on the street and and i'm now 36 i wouldn't have wanted to be any younger nor would i have wanted it to happen any quicker i mean it's it's really a head fuck in fact in fact it's not it's it's actually fine but every now and then it's a head fuck and if I didn't have my experience and my wife and my kids and my family and my self-esteem which is built on 
something deeper than success because I had none for so long, you know, that self-esteem you build up in your 20s that you have to build up so you don't get depressed when you're doing <laughs> night after night of terrible gigs, you right. know. Um, all, the, all those tools and just knowing what you value because that's when you learn what you value in your 20s. You, you sort of have a pretty good hint at it in your late teens, at the sort of person you want to be and stuff, but it's your 20s that teaches you what what you what you value and, and expands your knowledge base and all that stuff. I've got a song that I've never quite written called Spend Your 20s Poor. I think, I mean, obviously I'm an optimist, so I look back at my history and think it's a good one, but I do think it's a really... It's a huge problem to be rich and famous at 22. I don't know who you are. Who who the fuck are you if you're rich and famous at 22? Well, I think that's why a lot of people kind of crash and burn, because they don't know. Yeah. And also, when you get to that level of success and you're really young, you don't have enough people in your life kind of keeping you in check. Who who you know their motive. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, Bo... Bo, Bo just looking at a photo of Bo. He, and Reggie Watts. That's a fucking great picture that uh, Dan Dion took in Montreal. It's amazing. I'm sure it's online somewhere. But um, Bozy was famous at 16, internet famous, mm-hmm. huge, you know. And then a whole lot of people, you know, scooped him up, agents and stuff, and tried to figure out what to do with him. And he's got such good parents and a girlfriend from the early days, and and he's really, really bright. Uh, Shockingly bright. He's, yeah, he's annoyingly bright. I was in a room in Montreal with Eddie Azard and me and uh, a couple of agents and producers and all these kind of quite big wiggy people. And I just had, had this moment where I realised that Bo was just so by far the smartest person in the room. I mean, he's <laughs> the just smartest than ever. You know, talking shit. Yeah, he's, six, he's like he's like six six, six, six five six. six and he loves to you know at uh, in Montreal. The, the main hotel, which I think is the Hyatt where everyone stays, there's a circular bar and after everyone's yeah. shows, everyone just kind of, yeah. and it's like a, it's sort of like Montreal's like a rain gutter that just spills everyone out yeah. there. Spews comedians. And they just, all the comedians with it. And, uh, and, and you know, I would end up talking to Bo there for a while. Like, he would come up and want to start talking about science and physics because yeah. he... Yeah. He knows that I love that stuff, and he yeah. knows he knows way more than I do. And he just starts talking about wormholes, and I feel like yeah. I should email him because they're about to. They think CERN they're about to discover the, the Higgs boson. I'm on tour at the moment with someone who works at CERN. Are you serious? I'm on tour with Brian Cox at the moment. Oh my science god! Show. How are you not seeing the science show? You're going to be gone. I'm going. I told you on Tuesday night it's on, but I'm not on. Oh, but um, you should see it because they're going to go live to CERN at oh. the show. That's amazing. Yeah, they're close. They think they're going to discover it sometime well, in the beginning of next year. The really year. interesting thing is that CERN have some results that I've seen the paper, but I can't, I don't know what it means, but um, I can't read that language. But, uh, um, <laughs> uh, and Brian has read the paper, obviously, but science being science, of course, they've done it. My understanding is that CERN has done a test and although um, CERN's the only place that can do the acceleration required to do this, there's some other other group. I don't know if it's in another accelerator or just another group working at the LHC, but they they're not gonna they won't look at each other's papers until they're prepared because they don't want to they want it to be blind. They don't want anyone to 
be uh, biased in what they're looking for and right. all this sort of shit. It's incredible. It's very, very exciting. Um, so as far as I know, sort of today, CERN are getting the results from the CMO or whatever it's bloody called. You know, they're collating their results today. Right. And I've no idea, but something in the eye of Cox uh, made me think that it might be bigger than we think this data now. It, it might it might be like a serious indication of Higgs. I wonder if that's... I wonder if, it, like, what the next step is, is once they discover... Yeah. this last fundamental piece if that means that they are going to pretty quickly have an understanding of why objects have mass or is it like no 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 no. this was just so that we could begin that Down that, that process well, see, it's my understanding of sort of the the fundamental um i mean i must say i have no idea what i'm talking about i can talk about this stuff in the most stupid language i don't even know what i'm talking about when i'm talking about it but but my understanding is that the, the sort of central um, equation in quantum mechanics acts as if the Higgs boson is true. The, the equation sort of requires Higgs's hypothesis to be the case mm-hmm. in order that it can make the calculations that quantum physics makes successfully, predictively, and all that. So it's... So, so I don't really under... I could be wrong about that, but that's what confuses me, that area, because it seems that quantum physics is going about business as if Higgs is right, and that if they confirm that Higgs is right, they'll go, yeah, he was right, thank goodness, we've well, been using well that us. all along. Well done us. Yeah, um, but anyway, it's, you know, it's very, very... Uh, it, I mean, it's there's a whole lot of space, and we don't know what it is. And it's a, isn't it a step towards understanding dark matter? You know? Well, they're going to look at it. I think. Yeah, I think we know that what's going to happen is they're going to see the particle. It's going to be like opening the Ark of the Covenant. Everyone's going to be like, "It's beautiful," and then they're going to get zapped in the face, and then yeah. everyone's going to die because yeah, you're not supposed to see it. Big stone is going to roll after. Them. And then some weird German guy is going to melt yeah. right next to the LHC. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Oh, so cool. I mean, that'll happen. At yeah. least that'll be on some sort of. That'll be nice. Yeah. Well, hopefully, damage. we'll get it live at the gig on Tuesday night. <laughs> <laughs> that would be epic. So Bo is <laughs> Bo really smart, sweet um, kid. but he's very, very young. Yeah. And every now and then, you see it. You see how young he is, you know. And not that he tries to hide it. He he's sitting there going, "I'm a, I'm a kid," you know. He couldn't drink last time I was in town. Right. He's only just turned twenty-one, and he's got incredible stability around him. But I'm still worried about him. Even the most stable, smartest kid, I'm worried about him. He's so insightful, so he knows that he's got a... And he's making this TV show for MTV, and it's going to be really interesting and quirky. Mm-hmm. He's never made the obvious decision. He's How many 20-year-olds in, in, in the States, given um, millions and millions of YouTube hits and all these agents going, we're going to make you a star, which is what they all say over and over again until you start not being able to hear the words. What sort of... How many American kids would go, oh, sorry, I'm going to Edinburgh. I'm going to the Fringe. Oh, I, I mean, I, I think Bo and maybe five other people because our whole culture is built around, like, no, 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 you need to be on TV and be famous yeah. as quickly as possible. And America is where everything happens. Yeah. And they, I mean, it, I, I, I suffer that when I come to America, this kind of... What, what, what do you mean you're going home? <laughs> this is... You're here. <laughs> But you've arrived. Where are you going? Come back. I mean, I'm going. I'm going to England. Where this is the biggest live comedy. Nah, 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 nah. nah. We'll, we'll take a lot of their shows yeah, and then just right. make our own version. Yeah, exactly. That's right. <laughs> we'll make a. Yeah, well, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. Yeah. Uh, and then Reggie Watts also in the picture, who's who's 
is genuinely one of my favorite people in the world. He's so good. He's another, he's so he's another one of those guys that you talk to when you're like, you're a lot smarter than I am, Reggie yeah. Watts. Oh, he's well smart. Yeah, he's an interesting guy. He treads that sort of hippie line. I, I don't really understand. I haven't spent enough time with him to know, because I think he quite likes uh, hallucinogens and stuff, and, <laughs> and I don't really have that. Um, <laughs> I don't have that side of me, so he's kind of a bit of a, um, um, a, a mind traveler, you know. Oh, he and, definitely... And that's his sort of view on the world, and I'm this sort of hyper-rational guy, but he's, he's, I mean, he's basically really smart, and I sort of have to strain to keep up. He's good. The music show at Montreal has become really huge, and, and I did it the very first year they had a music night with my buddy Mike What Furman. year was that? I think it was 2005, oh, maybe. Oh, yeah. And it was very small, and no one came to the shows, and we didn't do well. And what was it called? What is it called? Uh, my thing? No, what do they call the show now? Oh, I don't remember. It was, oh, uh, I think it was. I think it was called Amped or something. It's this still year? called Amped. Amped. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. But right. it wasn't. It wasn't it called wasn't the Amped the first year we did it. It was the music yeah. show or yeah, something. And, and no one. It was late night show at Club Soda. And no one came. And like I said, no one came. And then, uh, but you know, in, in the years since, people like yourself and Reggie and Bo like have really made it the show to go to to the extent that they shot it this year, didn't they? Yeah, well, in 2000 and... Like, they shot as a television special. I I think it was last year, unless it was two years ago. That year, that photo was taken. Reggie and me and Beardy Man. Oh, yeah, of course. And it was this... It just... We did a couple of nights in a row, and everyone came the first night, and it was this sort of just one of those nights that you wish you could force all the time, but you just can't, because... Reggie was a bit kind of had some cookies or something and beardy man I was a bit drunk and and we all improvised and did a bit of freestyling and teasing each other and it's just kind of wicked uh and everything a comedy night should be but you can't make it it's just that thing with people feeling generous comedy nights are often full of people feeling ungenerous comedians find it hard to make space for other comedians it's very difficult you know to improvise and stuff but with music that opens all that up um late and live in edinburgh is a place where people are constantly walking on stage and kind of interacting but it often just becomes weird bullying and stuff it's quite strange but with music it's very easy to be generous because you can just groove and beatbox and make space and if again it's laughter's not the only currency so no one's freaking out if people aren't laughing have you thought about maybe at Edinburgh one year if you guys are all there kind of maybe getting together again that's, well, that's an amazing lineup the four of you Beardy Man is there someone else by the way that is I think a lot of hardcore comedy nerds in the states know but not everyone in the states knows Beardy Man and you definitely should look him up if you don't oh, know man. Beardy Man his, his voice does things that you can't Sexy. process I've done more than I'm, I've gone some way down the track of trying to create a full on big theatre show with, with Beardy and Reggie and, and me and some violinists and I, I've twice gone down that track and got close to booking venues and uh, it was going to happen now actually it's going to be in December this year but Reggie's on tour with John Legend or something or he was going to be or... so we lost Reggie and then the thing fell over and then I sort of reinvented in my head to involve uh, some uh, sort of 
careful about talking about too much because I think sure, it's a good sure. idea and I'm not sure but I don't want people to think it's going right. to happen but anyway uh, some big a big violinist who plays through pedals and beardy man and you know I, I, I want to create, create this sort of music freak show which is bits of and then try and get someone like Tim Key or someone to to do some poetry or you know make it really weird and musical and then in the second act just open it up and improvise and make it sort of stunning that's um, really good that's great because with Beardy Man you can sort of blow people's minds that's our hour we hit like right exactly an hour amazing it really was good should we say something pithy to finish off <laughs> I have no pith um, I think the Proximity Lemons will be performing nowhere near each other. <laughs> On either side of the globe at an un- undetermined Wait time. Wait a minute, this did come back around because the two particle accelerators are essentially Proximity Lemons. They are Proximity Lemons, firing Proximity Lemons. At, at the same other. time. Very close to the speed of light. But, not, but, then, but then hooking up to form a data set that... Is useful. So if you could talk to Mr. Cox about maybe renaming these two facilities, the Proximity Lemons, then I feel like our job here will have been accomplished. All right. It's made the last hour worth it. Was that pithy enough? That's pithy as hell, man. All right, good. Thanks, man. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. But wait! Don't enjoy your burrito just yet. Uh, As promised, I'm tacking on one of Tim's songs at the end of this podcast. This is taken from an Australian TV show called The Sideshow with Paul McDermott. Uh, It's one of my favorite songs by Tim. I just, I love it. I love the musicianship. I love the lyrics. I love the performance. So here you go. It's from a few years ago. It's Rock and Roll Nerd by Tim Minchin. Yeah, on Canaris Radio. Oh, God, sorry. Old radio habits. Bad host. Bad, bad. doesn't have a problem with drugs he just doesn't get them (laughs) he's fine that his mates have tattoos but he thinks they'll regret them he likes going to pubs but he hates it when the music's too loud he tends not to go to rock concerts because he can't stand the crowds but all he's ever wanted to be is a rock star on Rage or MTV But he knows that it's not fucking likely He just turned 30 He knows that he will always be A rock and roll nerd He'll keep writing songs the world will never hear Until they won't be heard He'll just keep writing Oh yeah But you see the problem is he always dreamt of being a star That he learned piano instead of guitar <laughs> Which in the 90s didn't get you very far So while the other kids were learning Stairway He was the piano to their forte But he was convinced one day he'd rock their fucking asses Be an icon for the disenfranchised masses 
grow his hair long and rebel against the state. But just for now, that'd have to wait, cause he's running late for his morning classes, and he will always be a rock and roll nerd. He'll keep playing gigs that no one knows about, and though it sounds absurd, he'll just keep playing. But you see, the problem is There's not much depth in what he's singing He's a victim of his upper-middle-class upbringing So he can't write about the hood Or bling-bling So he sits and imagines his girlfriend is dead To try and evoke some angst in his middle-class head But the bitch is always fine at half-past nine When they go to bed and he's not spent a single night in prison He has no issues with nutrition He has no drinking problem And no drug addiction Unless you count the drugs they put in chicken And marijuana always tends to make him cough He doesn't look good with his t-shirt off And when he tries to act tough You can tell he's tricking And gets a good eight hours He gets thrills from his morning run And while his mates all go on dates Are taking speed and drinking cans of Jim Beam He stays home and cooks Calls up with a book with the girl he's had Since he was 17 Cause he's never really been part of the scene Give him guns and roses He'll take Queen He's more into Beatles than the Stones He's more Stevie Wonder than Ramones And he's never owned a panel van He never shot a Pantera band Know the difference between metal and thrash He couldn't tell you nothing about Axel and Slash He likes Ben Folds and the Jackson 5 He knows all the words to staying alive And though he wants to feel crunchy and cool He spent 11 years at a private school So it don't matter how he tries He cannot hide behind his rock and roll lies Cause you've either got it or you don't You either leave the rocket or you won't That his music lacks depth, but it just can't be helped. He has nothing interesting to say, so he writes about himself. <laughs> but he doesn't want to seem self-obsessed, so he writes in third person. In an attempt to seem more rock and roll, but he suspects it's not working. <laughs> and deep in his heart, he knows that he'll never be Silver Chair or Eskimo Joe. <laughs> and even if he was quite pretty with small pants like Kylie, he knows that he will always be a rock and roll He'll keep writing songs.
LeavingNerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.